For Alaskans who are incarcerated, parole can be a path to early release from prison for those who model disciplined behavior through counseling, work training, and other services for self-improvement. But changes in Alaska's criminal justice laws have resulted in far fewer people being granted parole in the last five years. We'll talk about those changes and how they affect those in lockup, their families, and communities, today on Talk of Alaska. Funding for Talk of Alaska was made possible in part by the Alaska Mental Health Trust Authority and listeners just like you. Thank you. The views expressed on this program are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Hello, it's Talk of Alaska. I'm Lori Townsend. Small changes in legal language can mean big differences in outcomes for people seeking early release from prison through parole. Senate Bill 91 was passed in 2016 as a criminal justice reform measure and, among other changes, required the state's parole board to grant parole in certain cases. But in 2019, House Bill 49 clawed back many of the changes in SB 91. Jeff Edwards, the director of the Alaska Parole Board, says a single word change gave more discretion to the board. There was a legal requirement in some cases where if inmates met those requirements that the board shall grant discretionary parole. And that has since been changed under HB 49 that the board may grant. The difference between shall and may in legal terms is quite significant. Significant in that the number of people who applied and were granted parole went from 66% in 2015 to just 16% in 2020. Edwards attributes some of that decline to complications caused by the pandemic that canceled much of the in-person rehabilitation programming that is often required for parole. But beyond the disruption of a viral outbreak, what else is contributing to the more than 50% decline in parole being granted? Here to help us understand what some of the barriers may be and to discuss what parolees face when they are released is Rich Kurtner. Rich is the former federal public defender for Alaska and is the co-chair of the Alaska Black Caucus Justice Committee. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for being in the studio. Also in the studio with us today is Jonathan Pistotnik. Jonathan is the coordinator for the Anchorage Reentry Coalition. Hello. Good morning. Thanks for being here, Jonathan. And on the line from Fairbanks is Bobby Dorton. Bobby is the co-chair of the Fairbanks Reentry Coalition. Thanks for for joining us today, Bobby. Hello. You can also join our our discussion, Alaskans. Have you or a family member worked with the parole board to try for early release? Do you think it's better for people to serve a full sentence or better for people to do the work of self-improvement with the aim of early release? And what should the consideration be for the crime victim when the crime perpetrator asks for parole? You can join our conversation statewide at 1-800-478-8255. That's 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. I want to stress that we repeatedly tried to get Mr. Edwards or someone else from the parole board to come on with us today or to speak to us ahead of time, but they declined our request. The audio that you heard was from an earlier story produced by Alaska Public Media's Lex Trinan. 
So, Rich, let's uh, start off with kind of a review of the changes to criminal justice laws in Alaska over the past several years. As I noted earlier, in 2016, Senate Bill 91 changed a lot of the approach to crime and sentencing, reducing or eliminating jail time for some nonviolent crimes with the intent of reserving cell space for violent criminals. There were also other reforms regarding pretrial holding and release, reform to reentry programs, tightening up probation and parole supervision. What else happened under this law? And as an attorney, did you think it was these changes were needed and they were on the right track? Or do you think, as the critics said, that it was too lenient on crime? No, I think this is a big mistake to make this big change and turn um, turn the course uh, away from looking at rehabilitation and reentry of people back into their communities than just uh, retribution and, co- and incarceration. Um, so, and I think that uh, the biggest problem I see is that the parole board now has complete discretion. And it, and it's all dependent upon those people on the parole board, whether somebody gets out or not. Now, the last 24 years as a federal defender, I worked in a federal system that was completely different. They did, they abolished parole in 1987. And so if somebody gets a sentence in federal court, they get a prison sentence for their crime. They know what that is. And then they have a period of supervised release that looks like supervised, super, uh, like parole. Um, and when they come back on supervised release, when they're in, pro, in prison, they have a whole program of rehabilitative programs, a transition plan, maybe going into a halfway house and back into the community. And they also, uh, if they violate the conditions, a judge decides if they get a new sentence, not a parole board with, uh, who may come with their different prejudices to the, to the process. So interesting that there's no, so it's uh, it's similar to parole, but just by a different name or? It is similar in the fact that you're supervised. On and the in federal the, side. In the federal talking, side, yes. yes. And you have a very, I guess the, the numbers are lower than the state, so you have uh, a lot more intense supervision, especially for high-risk offenders. And uh, in fact, uh, in when I was there, we had a reentry court to help those very high-risk offenders get through the process of supervised release because nobody wants um, to see people um, released in the community that are dangerous. They're all coming back to their communities. And so we want to help prevent that. And uh, a, a judge um, is the one that should be overlooking that. The judge knows the original case. The judge uh, imposed a sentence. And if somebody has issues on supervision, you know, the judge can sentence that back that person back to federal prison. But I think there's a lot of efforts in the federal system to make sure that person doesn't have to go back to prison and uh, in that it, they have a real chance of success once they're released. Interesting. I, I want to talk more about that uh, and get comment from Jonathan and Bobby as well. But uh, three years after SB 91, there was a lot of, of heat around that, the, the issue of criminal justice reform. There was a spike in car thefts in Anchorage, and a lot of that was attributed to, uh, the critics said it was because of SB 91, that it was too lenient and um, allowed crime to, to ramp up. House Bill 49 was signed into law by Governor Dunleavy. What did it do, and what are your thoughts about about the effects of that? Well, I think the, the main thing I look at is uh, the different release for pretrial release and then uh, mainly for parole because, um, you know, Lori, in my career, 
since I've been practicing law as a public defender. I've seen, even though the population of this country and the state has increased by 50%, the increase of the prison population was, uh, was by 850% in the nation. And so I looked at the population increase in Alaska, it's 650%. And so we've, we've been in this system of mass incarceration all this time. And it's, it was fueled by fear, fear of crime, uh, be hard on crime, fear of drugs, the war on drugs. And I think just now, nationally, people are, are recognizing the, the, uh, the harm of mass incarceration that we've done. It hasn't worked, and it's hurt a lot of families, a lot of communities. And so this is a backward step to decide that uh, we're going to release less people. We're going to have less rehabilitative programs. And so that's the, the biggest thing I see with these changes is when we took a step for reform, now we're going backwards based on fear, no facts. You know, I don't think the facts were there, the statistics were there. They were when the first uh, reform passed. But this is, I think, strictly based on fear of crime, and uh, which has been a problem in this country for a long time. And the, those big spikes in percentages, is that primarily on the state prison side or the federal prison side, okay. or is it kind of split? It's both. It's okay. both. I mean, I looked at, I looked at the national uh, percentages, of the, the rates of incarceration for the last 40 years, and I compared it to Alaska, and it's pretty. It's um, Alaska is just a little bit better than national, but the fact that our po prison population has increased by 650 percent since the late 70s to now. I mean, think of the expense of that. It's our community is spending so much money. Our taxpayers are spending spending so much money on incarceration, and it should be beneficial rather than a negative. If you're just joining us, this is Talk of Alaska, and today we're talking about the decline in discretionary parole and why that is happening in Alaska. Our guests today are Rich Kurtner. Rich is the former federal public defender for Alaska and the co-chair of the Alaska Black Caucus Justice Committee. Jonathan Pistotnik is the coordinator for the Anchorage Reentry Coalition, and Bobby Dorton is on the line from Fairbanks and is the co-chair of the Fairbanks Reentry Coalition. You can join us at 1-800-478-8255. That's the number statewide, 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422, 550-8422, and you can email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Jonathan, your thoughts here on both SB uh, 91 and HB 49. Do you think the changes under SB 91 were on the right track, or was it too much? Again, as the critics of the legislation claimed, a rise in car thefts uh, was blamed on, at least in part, on changes in law at that time. Um, what are your thoughts about this? So I came into Alaska after it was implemented, and so I kind of came into this work when there was already the backlash and so from my perspective, I think that the, the rolling back um, of the comprehensive justice reforms was it happened too soon for us to really attribute like whether these changes in the law um, were directly impacting like the crime rates in, well, in Anchorage and across the state. So um, I think rolling it back was maybe a knee-jerk reaction before we really looked at what the data was telling us. Do you think um, 
when you work with people who have been incarcerated or who have um, committed crimes, do they think about what the sentence may be? I mean, do you think that longer, harsher sentences are in the minds of people in that moment when they're engaged in, in criminal activity? Are they thinking, hmm, if I do this, I'm going to go to jail for 10 to 20 or 5 to 10? Is that are, are longer sentences a deterrent? They could be, but if you're in the depths of alcohol and drugs or you have acute mental health needs, I don't think that you're necessarily thinking in that rational manner um, that A leads to B leads to C. So um, for some people, it could be a deterrent, but I think um, the correctional system is the safety net for a lot of our mental health needs these days. So I, I don't think that that's necessarily a deterrent um, mm. very often. Yeah. Bobby, your thoughts. What do you think about SB 91 um, that was designed, at least in part, after studying other states and, and countries? Was it the right approach and should have stayed in place? Or was HB 49 needed to balance the rights and needs of victims against the rights and needs of people who are incarcerated? How, how do you see that balance there? First of all, I'd like to applaud um, uh, Mr. Coghill and Jordan Schilling on on drawing up Senate Bill 91, and they did an awesome job. The thing was, is you know, that it didn't have much time to really take effect in what it was designed to do. So basically, they took it off. Are they, you know, 49 actually stopped it from what it was going to do before it even had a chance uh, on doing what it was designed to do, and. Um, that's what I think is that, you know, they should have gave it more time to produce more data instead of just wiping it out the way they did or, or cutting it back, most mostly cutting it back. And for people to go to prison um, and sit there uh, is basically warehousing criminals. Um, I truly believe in um, um, programming, and um, I think that programming and um, offering people to, you know, some some help while they're incarcerated would be the way to um, adequate, adequately address these um, problems that we're having with uh, um, people that are committing crimes in the in the community. All right, thank you for that, Bobby. 1-800-478-8255 is the number to call statewide. 1-800-478-8255. If you're in Anchorage, it's 550-8422, 550-8422, or you can email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. And we have Adam on the line from calling in from Phoenix. Hi, Adam. Hi, how are you doing this morning? Good. Did you have a question or a comment? Uh, I did, and it's unfortunate that the Department of Corrections didn't, you know, didn't respond because my question really is for them. Um, I'm a formerly incarcerated individual with the state of Alaska. I served almost 25 years up there. And part of the um, frustration that prisoners have, in addition to lack of programming and COVID throwing everything to the wind, um, and the, 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 the really, really tight restrictions that, that prisons have been on during the COVID pandemic and the lack of rehabilitative programs that are able to that were able to continue through there. But part of the frustration that prisoners feel is we don't have a set of clear guidelines from the Department of Corrections about 
Yes, you messed up. Yes, you committed a crime. Yes, you created victims. This is how to, this is the road plan to get you from where you are now back out into society as a non-offending member. That integral piece is missing. It was missing through my entire 25 years. It was, my my reformation was self-directed. And it was because of the amount of reformational programs that I took, which was everything that was offered to me in 25 years. That was what was able to get me in a position where I was I was granted parole. Hmm. I was granted parole in 2018 and was released in 2019. And I guess the question that I have is an open question for DOC is for prisoners who are sitting in prison and they don't have the skills to become non-offending members of society. What are they supposed to do so that when they finally go see the parole board, the parole board says, You've made enough reformational progress. We're going to release you into society and see how you do. Because the, 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 the goal of reformation is, grant, is guaranteed for prisoners under the Alaska Constitution. And retribution is diametrically opposed to reformation. You know, the, the Supreme Court said in 19, the Alaska Supreme Court said in 1976 that, that retribution can't be used as a sentencing goal. Because it's inconsistent with the Alaska Constitution, and that is held up even to this day. So I guess my question for DOC, or if anybody else can provide a little bit of light, is how do we get that process from which, from the time a prisoner comes in, they say, here are your deficiencies. These are the classes that you need to take. This is your path to reformation so that when you go see the parole board, you're able to get out. Now, Mm -hmm. if a prisoner chooses not to take that path, that's their choice. But without having that type of, of, of some clear guidance map, yeah, that, yeah, that, that yeah. type of guidance form, we're, we're lost. And I, I guess that's my question. And if anybody can shed a little bit of light on that, I'd, I'd really appreciate it. All right. Well, thank you, Adam. Uh, I appreciate the call. And um, Rich, let's drill down a little there. Uh, in in just a bit, we're going to hear from someone who is currently incarcerated about their experience in trying to meet the requirements for parole. Uh, so Adam's call is is really timely here. But tell us about your experience working with Alaskans who went through this process of asking for parole and what that process is like. Well, f- first of all, I mean, Bobby and Adam are absolutely right. Uh, you know, SB 91 came through um, at, not out of thin air. I mean, they did a lot of research. We, I remember they had hearings when they had legislators from Texas come up and say this type of reform works, and it works for the state of Texas, and that's why it was adopted here. And didn't they also study some models in Norway as well? Yes, they had all kind of this? research. It was based on evidence-based research, and so it was a well-reasoned um, approach to criminal justice and incarceration because we had such a uh, over— uh, overpopulation here, the prisons were overcrowded. We had to send people to Arizona, like 3,000 miles from their family, because of overcrowding. So this was a very logical, uh, well-examined approach. And then they changed it without uh, like any time to let those the results of that uh, reform go take place. Now, I agree completely also that there should be guidelines for the inmates and for the people incarcerated to, to to better their life. And that's what's is in the federal system as a model, I suppose, but uh, that's completely lacking in the state. You know, my clients I've seen in state custody are so frustrated because 
you know, no matter what they do, and even when there's a programming available, they see a parole board that doesn't know anything about them and has a complete attitude of retribution rather than rehabilitation. That's what I hear now uh, from this parole board. And that is so frustrating for those who are incarcerated. It's fairly difficult to get into programming anyway and to have that successful change of mind, as you've seen Adam has, uh, that we can they can actually get back in their community and be a successful contributing citizen and and so this is what thing Alaska needs to address this they need to address the whole parole process and they have to have guidelines of how people can be successfully uh, rehabilitated in prison and be successfully released back into their communities and we don't have that were you still a public defender when the law change happened and do you think that's the largest contributor to less parole being granted now? Well, I know it's the less. I mean, you know, it doesn't go from 66% to 16% just by itself, just by the people who are incarcerated. You know, I, I worked in the federal system, so I did, wasn't directly involved, but I've had clients in both systems, and I've had heard from so many attorneys and community members and family members that it's, it's so frustrating that uh, it's um, there's just no path to to getting back to the and the fact that what I've heard over and over again somebody can do more time like 10 years for not making parole or for a decision on the parole board the judge may have given them a certain sentence for their crime and they do more time because the parole board has this attitude of retribution and thinks that they should be incarcerated you know that is completely wrong and it's and it's really hurts all the communities in Alaska when that happens in your experience, have you found that parole uh, helps reduce recidivism? If there's if there's uh, programming for it, you know, and if there's um, uh, you know if, if people are given a chance in the training, in federal court we had a reentry court where the highest risk of any offenders in Alaska uh, were released and uh, and and they were in programming and they would go to court with a, a U.S. attorney with a public defender with the judges there and uh, knowing that there was that support and the program available made a com tremendous difference and um, that's this seems like there's none of that attitude here with the parole board and state of corrections you know the fact that they didn't even show up today shows how interested they are in this issue and I hope maybe after this program they'll decide to show up again and we can have a little discussion together about these issues but it's a really tragic thing that affects all Alaskans, really. Bobby, your thoughts uh, about that recidivism and parole success? Um, speaking from my lived experience with um, incarceration um, and substance use disorder disorders that I've had, um, it's simple. Um, when you think about, um, you know, the accountability part, it, it is it is awesome. Um, it's awesome that. Um, you're able to have that tool of, of guidance from your parole officer. And like like the last guy that was sharing, um, you would need somebody that is trained in that area. So I was real fortunate to have some um, strong supports that believed in me and believed in people can change. And that took place while I was in prison. And it gave me incentives to try harder, um, bring the best of myself out. And what I did was I did program after programming, like that guy that called in that did 25 years. I did program after program after program. 
And the further I got, it was like little trophies having those certificates. And the more trophies I got, the more certificates I got, the better I felt and the more comfortable I felt with in my own skin. And what that means to me is that I wanted to, um, you know, I wanted to do one thing. I wanted to, to get better, and I wanted to make my community better. And so I started looking at um, reducing recidivism here in, in uh, the conferences in Anchorage, 19, 20, and 21. And I worked with multiple organizations, understanding and education, the is- educating the issues with recidivism. And by doing that, I was able to, to land a job as a substance, use, uh, substance abuse counselor and um, work on many different um, boards as a member. And so my, so my view on it is absolutely it can work. But a lot of times, if you don't uh, have somebody that is um, believing in you and giving you that fair shake, that fair chance, it's not going to work. Mm. And so, in other words, I was blessed with an awesome parole officer from the get-go. But the ones that didn't get, that wasn't blessed with the one that I got was back in prison before they knew it. So it's really a hit or miss. And um, I truly believe in, you know, um, people can change, and and if you work if you work just as hard as bettering yourself as when you were doing the riffraff out on the streets, then you will be, reap the reap the benefits of of um, the blessings that come with that. So that's my belief. Uh, you've really laid out the importance of having a support network and people who believe in you and help you, Jonathan. Your thoughts on on some of what um, both. Bobby and Rich have discussed here when it comes to recidivism rates, support networks, and being granted parole. I think it's really vital that um, pro-social opportunities are presented to people while they're incarcerated and that um, these pathways um, are provided to people so that when they get released to the community, because we know that, you know, the the boilerplate statistic is about 95%. Almost everybody's going to get released back to the community at some point. So if they have these opportunities um, to figure out what their pathway might be when they get released, that improves that individual's, um, you know, potential for success. Um, but that also impacts the community. Like that's, that's a form of public safety if somebody isn't returning back to corrections, to back to the system. Um, so I think it's really vital that um, opportunities be provided inside the prisons, educational, treatment, um, building these networks um, that build up skills, build up confidence. Um, I, I, that's really vital. And I think that the community is there to help pr- provide some of that. Like not all of this should be provided by the Department of Corrections. Um, there are interested people around the state um, programs and advocates that are are willing to put in that effort, put in that work to connect with these people while they're incarcerated and then help them be successful when they get out. So I think it's it's this relationship between the Department of Corrections and the communities that's really vital and continuing to build that and um, find out where those opportunities are that we can have those engagements, have those conversations and actually like kind of bring some services and engagement and programming inside 
I think I think that's really vital to like moving all this forward. It, it seems like uh, that idea of seeing rehabilitative services as a form of public safety may be missing in you know in some um, some view of the public that they make that connection between you know that that it's seen more as being soft on criminals or or coddling them somehow if you're providing services when really as you said it's it's a public safety issue that if if people are not recidivizing then there's not another crime being committed and there's not victims again of that crime yeah exactly i mean for me it's i mean it's obvious like yeah. if somebody if we're helping to prevent less victimization like that's public safety and i think we can all get on board with that um, no matter where your what your perspective is. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a good way to term it. Thank you. Let's go to Kiana now. Ben is in Kiana. Hi, Ben. Hello. Hi. Did you have a question or a comment? Hi. Thank you. Yes, uh, thank you for having me on your program. Yes, thank you. Uh, do, uh, do any of you know uh, uh, what uh, 27 CFR 7211 is? Uh, it says that all crimes are commercial. Can you explain that and, uh, and how it fits in with uh, parole, uh, how it relates to parole, uh, uh, mandatory parole, discretionary parole? What what are commercial crimes? Commercial crimes? All crimes are commercial. I, I'm not familiar with that. Are either of you? No. no. Um, ben, uh, we're not quite clear about what that is. But uh, thanks for the call. If somebody has some idea of those distinctions and wants to call in and help us out, that would be great. Right now we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back we'll continue with our conversation about changes to criminal justice law and what the best way forward is for both people who are trying to reenter society successfully uh, as Talk of Alaska continues statewide. Talk of Alaska is brought to you in part by your local public radio station. If you're hurting in your relationship or have been affected by sexual violence, Strong Hearts Native Helpline is a free 24-7 confidential and anonymous domestic dating and sexual violence helpline for Alaska Natives. Help is available by calling 1-844-762-8483 or by using the chat now icon at strongheartshelpline.org. This message sponsored by the National Indigenous Women's Resource Center. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. Today we're discussing the decline in discretionary parole and how that's affecting both people who are incarcerated, but also their families, communities, and the state, and uh, what the right balance should be for both punishment for a crime, but also rehabilitation services for people who want to successfully re-enter society and not end up back in jail or prison again and also considering what the needs of people who have had crimes perpetrated against them 
are and should be. 1-800-478-8255 is the number statewide. If you have a question or a comment and you'd like to call in, 1-800-478-8255. In Anchorage, the local number is 550-8422. You can also email us, talk at alaskapublic.org. Let's go back to the phones for just a moment. Terry is in Fairbanks. Hi, Terry. Hi. Um, I have three observations. Uh, two apply to specifically this program, and one uh, is for before parole. Um, I work with, uh, recently have been working with uh, someone who was sent to jail who we all believe was innocent. Um, he needed to use a public advocate. And I guess my observation is they're terribly underfunded. The investigator on their staff worked one half day a week, which just meant was a joke for the amount of clients they had. So he was in jail for two years before his case came to trial. By then, he just gave, he said, I just need to get out. I, I'm going to plea bargain. And um, I just think that's a system that drives people to accept guilt even when uh, they are not guilty. My second observation is that uh, most of the people in the prison system that I saw, I would visit him uh, weekly, um, had substance abuse problems. And no treatment, nothing was required of them we need to provide a treatment program in prison for these people because so many of them, these young people, were saying they couldn't wait to get out and start using again, which, of course, would send them right back to prison. So uh, there needs to be, and I don't know that um, the amount of time, a certain amount of time in jail is very helpful. The person I worked with was able to get off his tobacco addiction and absolutely uh, never use alcohol again. And um, uh, he found that two years was really helpful that way. But I think we really need to address the substance abuse problem in a serious way. And then thirdly, the parole system we found is a joke. It just seems to be a system that tries to trap people and find ways to send them back. He received no help from the parole system to get his life back. Uh, Everything he accomplished uh, was done on his own and with our help. Uh, The parole, the uh, person who does his his, his parole officer um, just seems to set requirements. She'll often change them and not tell him and then get angry at him when he, for example, just this month, he was, uh, she changed his needing to report by phone to coming in person, but never told him. So when he Mm -hmm. called in, she was all upset with him because he didn't show up in person. He had to say, you never told me. Oh, I must have forgotten. This just happens constantly, and there's no no direction. There's just, do you uh, meet the requirements, and can we sort of set it up so you might fail? And really, the parole system ought to be helping them transition. Mm-hmm. None of that is 
done. Well, thank you, Terry, uh, for laying that out for us and your experience with the system. Um, I want to get some reaction now. Jonathan, you uh, would like to weigh in. Yeah, so I'm not an employee of Department of Corrections. Uh, Just as an observer, uh, I will point out that there are opportunities for um, drug and alcohol treatment inside the facilities, inside DOC. Um, Bobby might be able to add a little bit more clarity, but um, not every institution has the same type of programming. So it's not as if there's equal opportunity in every institution. It kind of depends where you land. Um, There are wait lists. So there is you know, finite capacity to receive treatment as well. So there's limitations there. Um, And, you know, it varies from institution. Uh, So it's what my, uh, I'm a public health professional, sort of, that's how I come to this work. So I would advocate for more treatment opportunities within DOC. Um, But, you know, there are opportunities to receive treatment. Um, It's not as if there's none. Bobby, would you like to weigh in there? Yes. Um, so some of the treatments that they have inside of prisons are called residential substance abuse treatment. And um, recently, Cliff Rowe out of Anchorage um, lost the, the the bid on it. So Set Free Alaska has got the bid. And they have uh, are beginning to start up at Goose Creek and um, uh, Correctional Center. So that's a really... Um, uh, great program. I did the program uh, when Nikila had it, had the had the bid, and um, it changed my life. Um, it was focusing on uh, relating personal experience to participants within the program. So it was like a community-based uh, program, and um, we did everything from waking up at the same time to um, washing our face and getting ready for the day together. And it was just an amazing experience to be able to learn how to live again. Yeah, that's what that program did for me. Mm-hmm. Also, they have a reentry program. There's a reentry program here in Fairbanks that uh, I did with um, Marsha Ose. And she was um, messaging me a little bit ago saying that she has seen a decline in, in referrals from the Department of Corrections to her program. So I don't know what's up with that, but, you know, um, it's definitely changed my life. I did that program and graduated that program back in 2019. And um, yeah, today I'm a co-chair with the reentry coalition here in Fairbanks. And our mission is to uh, create a community where returning citizens have the keys to successfully achieving their personal goals. I think I speak uh, on that, meaning you know, I'm like total proof that people can change and find their personal goals and achieve them. So, mm. yeah, um, programming has done uh, everything for me. But like I said, it's not for everyone. You have to be ready. You have to make your mind up that you're not about that life and you don't want prison life. And then you go from there and just sign up for these programs and, and get through them. And, and show, show the people that you, you are a different person. But like I said, it all be, begins within. Um, and you'll know when it begins because your heart changes, your thoughts change, and then your actions change. And once your actions change, people start seeing that. They'll start to believe in you. But it doesn't happen overnight. Um, it didn't happen for me overnight. 
Um, I did so much damage that it took uh, a couple years before some people would even shake my hand. Um, Then they said, hey, you look like you're the real deal. I didn't shake your hand before. Forgive me. I'm shaking your hand now because I believe in you. And um, those are some of the blessings that I've that I've received in the community. And I'm able to help people in a wider range of people that way. Well, and, and as you mentioned, Bobby, it, it doesn't happen overnight. Um, people don't get into um, tough situations overnight either. It takes oftentimes a long time before someone is addicted or you know, has been abused in their home or had other traumas in their life that led to addiction or other things. And those have a long trajectory. And so healing and recovering from those things also takes time. Anything, Rich, that you want to add before we go back to the phones for a moment? Yes. Uh, first of all, the caller that with uh, I completely agree with her. I've heard all these things over and over from clients and from community members and uh, family members, and everything she said is absolutely true. And I think it's interesting what Bobby says, because, you know, sometimes uh, a sentence of incarceration with treatment is really can be effective. I've in the federal system, we have what's called RDAP, which is a um, 500 hour alcohol treatment program in house in prison. And it takes a year to complete. It's very intense. And I've had people do a three or four year sentences and come out and they tell me, boy, that program was really good really effective and it has changed your life and they haven't come back but unfortunately doc they don't offer those opportunities especially this last year they weren't letting any people anybody into the prison until a judge said they had to and not even the attorneys and family members and so um i agree with jonathan i would really like to see the department of corrections work with the community and trying to establish uh programming and treatment that would be effective in our communities. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to the phones for a moment. Uh, Bobby was talking about uh, case manager, Marsha, and she's on the phone, uh, on the line <laughs> right now. Hi, Marsha. Hi, how are you? Good. Um, so tell us what you're seeing as a case manager. Okay, I'm, um, I have a different viewpoint uh, from the last gentleman and the last caller. Um, I've been working for the department for the agency that I work for, and we have contracts with the Department of Corrections, and I'm the reentry case manager. I've been doing that since 2017, and um, up until March of last year, we had robust programming happening across the state in all of the facilities. Just in FCC, which is is a pre-sentence facility, we had trauma groups going on. We had batterers interventions. We had substance abuse. We had um, mental health classes that were going on. We had women's groups going on. Um, And so there was a lot of treatment. Once COVID hit, everything stopped, and as it should have, because we didn't know what we were dealing with with the pandemic. But the cool thing was is that the parole, the in-house probation officers and the education people continued to let us get homework and get assignments into folks that wanted to continue programming during COVID on their own. So my experience has been a little bit different um, in what I've seen going on. They, they did everything they could within the guidelines of the CDC. Um, prior to that, I was um, a program manager for Aquila at FCC delivering treatment um, in the facilities. And we were always at capacity with 
wait list. Uh, the thing that I have noticed in this last year is there's been a, a, a downward turn of referrals to folks to reentry because we would normally start working with them three months before they get out and get everything lined up, get their treatment, paperwork ready to file for Medicaid so that they can get into different treatment facilities that take Medicaid. And we, I've seen a downward tick in referrals for that um, because we work three months in and then six months to a year out on the outside with them. And I just haven't had the referrals. We're starting to finally see numbers coming back up, but just this last year, it's been relatively slow. And part of that was because in the communities, we didn't have people doing treatment mm -hmm. or if they were, they were doing it over the internet. And a lot of folks didn't have access to computers and handheld um, tablets where they could access a treatment provider. So I think we have to look at what was happening and put it in perspective because my experience, and I've worked in the Department of Corrections uh, in Idaho as well here in Alaska, and I have seen an incredible turnaround from just warehousing to getting people treatment, getting them help, allowing them to see a psychiatrist, get their mental health issues taken care of. Can we do better? Absolutely. Um, but I think it's, it's a kind of like throwing the baby out with the bathwater when we try to make, an, a, make a, a survey or an observation when we're just coming out of a pandemic. And Bobby, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> well, thank you, Marsha. Certainly putting that into perspective is important. As we know, everything was disrupted over this last year and a half by the pandemic. And so, of course, services were put on hold, as so many other things were as well. And hopefully that can be more robust going forward now that things are reopening. We are going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll continue with our conversation and hear from someone who is currently incarcerated about their uh, attempts at getting paroled as Talk of Alaska continues. Today's program is underwritten in part by ConocoPhillips, investing in oil exploration and production and working to create economic opportunities for Alaskans. ConocoPhillips, unlocking Alaska's energy resources. Welcome back to Talk of Alaska. Let's hear from John Rice now. John started getting into trouble when he was young. He had an abusive home life and spent time in McLaughlin Youth Detention Center in Anchorage. He was released at 17 but was convicted of homicide before his 18th birthday. He was in for decades, went up for parole several times, got paroled, but 10 months later, he got in trouble again for Matthews. Now he's married. He has a young son. He was sent back to Wildwood, spent time in rehabilitation programming, and went back to the parole board in 2017. At my parole board hearing in 2017, they recommended that I uh, re-enter treatment, uh, you know, complete that, and then do the 48-week uh, cognitive change program. And they, um, they continued my case for two years, which means they, they put it off two years until I completed these programs before they made a decision on what to do, um, you know, with me. And I completed those two programs, you know, I, you know, put my heart and soul into those programs. I learned a lot and, you know, it, I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that I have the opportunity to do so. I also completed several other programs that were helpful. 
In 2019, he went up for parole again, this time under a new parole board that has denied parole requests at a higher rate than any other on record. Rice says that from the start, it felt different. Or they didn't give me the impression that, you know, they see me as someone who was struggling, needed a little bit of help, you know, learned from this experience and was ready to move on. They, you know, um, the one of the first questions that Ms. Glenwald asked me was, do I know what a victim is? And um, that was clear to me that, you know, she was there to, you know, give me a lesson on, you know, victimhood. And finally, Rice says he went to the parole board with the understanding that after completing the classes he was told to take, he would be released again. His parole violation that put him back in prison was nonviolent, but the new parole board told him to try again in 10 years. You know, I mean, what good is it going to do me to do another 10 years in prison? You know, my, uh, my son is growing up without a father, and my wife is, you know, has to raise him uh, without my help. The, uh, the parole board does not consider the victims that they create by doing what they did to me. So we have been talking about the fact that a lot of the programs were suspended over this past year and a half because of the pandemic. But, Rich, help us understand how the suspension of in-person programming and, um, and, and the limits that even when the programs are fully stood up, there's just so much capacity, as Jonathan noted. How, how does that impact a person's chances of parole? Well, I think a lot of it depends on the on the parole board you have, as you've seen by some of these examples. Um, and I, what I'm, I guess the question I would ask is, what accountability does the parole board have? I mean, is anybody overlooking their performance? And if they have this attitude because they were a, a murder victim family member, that they have a, a completely different attitude than other parole board members. Uh, you know that should be looked at and it should be accountable and uh, I think that I'm, I'm glad to hear that in Fairbanks they had robust uh, programming and hopefully they'll get back to that and uh, but I think the Department of Corrections has to make that effort and somebody I think really needs to investigate how this parole board works because to go from a 66% rate of um, of release on discretionary parole to 16% is, to me, it's outrageous. And I would like to know if the the people that uh, Marsha's ha- been helping up in Fairbanks and they do the programming and reentry, um, are they is that recognized by the parole board when they go up for discretionary parole? That would be a question I'd like to ask them. Jonathan, tell us uh, about some of the work that you do with people who have just been released from prison. And are people getting out that are getting out right now finding themselves in a tougher situation than before the pandemic because of the suspension of being able to see people having visitors and and taking um, classes or uh, engaging in some kind of rehabilitative rehabilitative therapies i mean certainly the pandemic has disrupted all facets of how things work um and of course, I think that that has a has had a detrimental impact on people that are trying to seek out services and engage with with treatment and um, people that will help them on their path back into the community. Um, but I would also add that you know my perspective is that a lot of these people were already really living at the margins to begin with. So I mean, they were having problems sort of getting timely access to services sometimes 
pre-COVID. So yes, it was amplified or heightened maybe a little bit, but for some people, they've they've always been at that margin. It's always been hard for them to access these kind of services and, and stay engaged, I think. Um, how big a, a an issue is housing when people are released? Huge. Um, it's funny you bring that up. Um, probably over the last year, that's really become front and center for me as an issue. It already was pre-COVID, but um, I get more um, emails and phone calls asking about housing here in Anchorage. And um, it's it's a huge issue. Um, you know, I once received a call from somebody that lived, was uh, in a treatment program in the Matsu. She was finishing up. She she was so desperate, she called me here in Anchorage asking for assistance or if I had any leads. So for me, that was really a flag, you know, like this is a really serious con- uh, issue. And when I get on some uh, some of these Zoom calls with my partners that are doing reentry around the state, this issue of housing is always coming up as a, as a topic, um, whether you're down in southeast or up north or here in Anchorage or in the valley. It's just um, statewide. It's a huge problem, a challenge. And, and I think there's a lot of resources, but there's still a lot of um, barriers to accessing housing. Um, and I think that it's both due to sort of this criminal justice roadblocks that appear, but also sort of macro issues in the housing market. Let's go back to the phones for just a moment. John is in Wasilla. John, we only have a few minutes left. Um, do you have a question? Yeah. How are parole board members selected? Um, Rich, do you have any insight into that? I think the governor appoints, I think the governor appointed Ms. Grunewald as the uh, chair of the parole board. And I think it's, uh, as far as I know, it's uh, the governor and the uh, appointment. Yeah, that uh, was just confirmed by our producer, Adeline Baxter, that the governor does appoint board members. <laughs> Bobby, are, are you seeing, you know, uh, Jonathan was talking about some of the barriers that people are facing. Do you see similar issues with housing or other things that are barriers for people who are recently released? And what what's being done about that? Absolutely, there's barriers, um, you know, not only for the people that are getting out of incarceration, coming back to this, the streets here in Fairbanks um, are having a hard time. Also, people that are getting out of treatment centers are also having a hard time finding um, um, shelter or housing. And um, it's been a, a, a passion of mine to help them to uh, advocate to get a, a place to live. But going back to what Rich was asking about, you know, um, does that help uh, Marsha's uh, program? Does that help a uh, a person that is uh, applying for discretionary parole to get granted. Absolutely not. It did not help me at all. Um, I had six months um, uh, of discretionary parole that I would be eligible for. I went up to the parole board and they told me, um, no, um, just wait till you're mandatory and then we'll grant you that. So they granted me my mandatory parole, which was, um, um, you know, I was only asking for six months and I got denied. And that's, um, that's, that's factual, you know, and, uh, mind, mind you that I, I, um, uh, I am a part of the, uh, or I'm on the board of the alcoholism and drug abuse and the Alaska mental health board, um, which is an appointment from the, by the governor. And, um, also the community co-chair for the Fairbanks Reentry Coalition, Additionally, the uh, Fairbanks Diversity Council, which is um, um, appointment by the mayor. So 
I'm on all these boards, and I am a, a living proof that people can change, right? And um, yet I couldn't get six months out of the, the board on discretionary parole. So if, if I can't get six months, I don't know who can get any time out of them because, you know, uh, I had to wait it out and, and go on to mandatory parole. Mm-hmm. And that's straight factual for the audience. I want you to know very clearly I'm saying that it's basically impossible to be um, awarded discretionary parole at this time. And what about uh, people, Rich, maybe you've got some insight into this, or anyone, Jonathan, Bobby, you can jump in too. We only have about a minute and a half left. What about people who live in rural communities where there are no parole officers to check in with? Do they end up having to stay in urban areas um, to satisfy the requirements if they are on parole, or are there ways for them to be able to return if they live in a remote community and, and still satisfy those requirements? No, that's been a big problem, I think, because uh, people from rural villages uh, and there aren't any resources, and you know, like in federal court, there'll be demands for their supervision that they have to meet, and they can't meet them in it except in Anchorage. And you know, I keep uh, telling judges, you know, to have this person stay in Anchorage when they really, their life and support is in the village, it's taking a fish out of water, you know, and it's, 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 a, it's not a good sign for, uh, uh, for success. So, uh, yeah, that is a problem. Jonathan, do you have any observations in, in that respect? Uh, the difficulties that people would face, uh, it's hard enough when you do have a support network, but if you're displaced and have to stay in an urban area when you have the support network somewhere else, how how much more difficult does that make it? I think it's very difficult. I think that this definitely happens in Anchorage. There's a lot of people that get released to this community that are not from here or they're not familiar with what we have to offer, and so it definitely adds a layer of uh, difficulty to their such chances. And do you find that a lot of them end up falling into homelessness and, and some do having it's other... not ubiquitous, but it does happen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much to our guest today, Rich Kurtner, former federal public defender for Alaska and the co-chair of the Alaska Black Caucus Justice Committee. Jonathan Pistotnik is the coordinator for the Anchorage Reentry Coalition. And Bobby Dorton is the co-chair of the Fairbanks Reentry Coalition and joined us by phone from Fairbanks. Thanks for listening today. Tobin Shelby is our audio engineer. Adlin Baxter is our producer. And on the phones and social media today was Kavitha George. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. I'm Lori Townsend. Talk of Alaska is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Today's program is available online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media. Alaska Public Media.